Hello again, it's Noah Coughlin, founder and CEO of BuildUp. Welcome back to The Big Dig, your top CRE podcast presented by BuildUp and NAOP, Massachusetts, the Commercial Real Estate Development Association. The Big Dig is brought to you by NBBJ. NBBJ is a different kind of design practice, one that helps companies capitalize on the relationship between people and physical space to enhance organizational performance. Using advanced computational tools and applied science, NBBJ partners with many of the world's top real estate, technology, and life sciences companies to understand how space impacts human behavior. The world's leading organizations look to NBBJ's experts to help them design environments that disrupt the status quo and affect real, meaningful change at all levels. Find out more at nbbj.com. That's nbbj.com. Hello again, Megan Doherty here from Build Up. We just wrapped up another great NAOP event, this time on life science, the market beyond Kendall Square. We've got an amazing panel here, so let me turn it over to Tamara Small, CEO of NAOP. Thanks, Megan. We just wrapped up the sold-out NAOP program, Life Science, Booming Beyond Kendall. Now we look forward to continuing the conversation with our expert panelists. Why don't we kick things off with some introductions? Great. Thanks, Tamara. Um, I'm Jess Hughes. Um, I'm Managing Director with Tishman Spire and responsible for Boston operations for Tishman Spire. Uh, I'm Karen Wheatley. I am a Vice President Leasing Broker on CBRE's Boston Consulting Team, uh, specializing in representing lab, tenant, and landlord clients. I'm Tom Andrews. I'm the co-president of Alexandria Real Estate Equities. I'm also the regional market director for our greater Boston region, consisting of about 7.5 million square feet of, of life science and office space. Uh, my name is Steve Faber. I'm the executive vice president of Related Beal with responsibility for our life science uh, real estate development activity. Thanks, everyone. Before we get started, maybe we just want to set the stage on where we are right now. Certainly, I think every day you pick up the newspaper, there's a new story about a new lab development underway. Um, you know, right now, recently, Boston and Cambridge Market was named as the number one life science cluster. And I think, Caroline, you mentioned in your presentation that now two-thirds of the lab under construction uh, in the area has already been pre-leased. Caroline, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how we got here over the past few years and why lab development is so hot right now? Sure. I think to summarize it, we've kind of seen the life sciences industry sort of grow up to some degree from its nascency and, you know, call it the 1980s when Cambridge was very much overlooked, a lot of manufacturing buildings kind of being converted to lab um, over the, you know, years following, all the way up to in the past, you know, five to 10 years when lab has been a space that has attracted um, investors and institutional owners and folks that maybe overlooked it before or thought it was um, too risky an asset class to kind of get involved with. So as we've seen more interest in lab, we've seen the life science industry sort of go from a strong one to one that's been, you know, one of the top two drivers for growth and expansion and demand in Boston over the last few years with technology being the other one. So all, with all that momentum going on, essentially Kendall Square has been caught in a situation where we've been in a, a world where vacancy rates are typically 2% or lower and lab users are in a situation where although they would love to stay in Kendall Square and, you know, keep having access to the talents, the, you know, the others in their peer group, the biotech startups all the way up to large pharma, VCs, etc. They're getting into situations now where they have to look beyond kind of the geographic bounds of Kendall Square and even Cambridge and look at some of these other submarkets that have done a nice job of creating compelling Kendall Square alternatives to kind of absorb all that pent up demand. Seaport being kind of one that's top of mind for folks, as well as Watertown, East Watertown specifically, and then kind of all the way around the ring of Cambridge. So Alston um, has announced plans for new development, as well as South Boston, Dorchester, Fenway, etc. So we're in an interesting place now where life science fundamentals remain very strong. 
candle remains full and everybody's kind of keeping an eye on the surrounding submarkets to see who's going to position themselves most effectively to start becoming kind of the number one destination to absorb that lab demand. So, you know, with this increased demand for lab space, we're seeing many more players in the market. Tom, it used to be uh, just a few years ago, it was just you and a few others who were doing lab development. What are some tips you could give to those who are entering the field? Uh, what works? What doesn't? What should these folks be thinking about? Don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, look, we've, we've had um, competitors in our market for, uh, for a long time. I will say there, you know, there are more now than there were. But I think that um, you know, the, being a life science landlord has, um, you, know, you need to have some, some special characteristics, let's say. You need to you know, be willing to have and, and have the capital available to build um, facilities that are um, robust to meet the needs of lab tenants that are reliable so that uh, tenant companies can uh, be confident that um, their experiments will you know, not be interrupted by problems with their facility. Uh, and I think you need to have a, a willingness to be to be flexible in your in your deal terms uh, over time as tenants needs uh, grow and uh, or as tenants grow and their needs change. Um, you know, we've certainly uh, I th- have the benefit I think of of having over you know grown to have a large portfolio here, which enables us to offer tenants more flexibility as uh, as they grow and their needs change and you know that's been one of the I think one of the hallmarks of how we've interacted with our with our tenant base and, and we think it's engendered a lot of uh, of loyalty and and, uh, and goodwill um, uh, among our tenant base these companies are doing really important work in, in trying to uh, help patients by you know developing new therapies for you know unmet needs in, in medicine and um, you know we take it seriously to try to try to be as helpful as we can to companies that are uh, that are on that mission. So um, uh, I think uh, th- those are among the things that, as a lab landlord, especially a long-term lab landlord, we uh, we feel are really important. This is Steve Faber. I-, I think the one of the great things about a lab business is the fundamental nature of the business plan. I love very simple business plans. Who doesn't want to live a longer, more healthy, productive <laughs> life? Nobody. Um, you look at the kind of pharmaceutical spending that is happening in the U.S. and around the world relative to past spending, and it's growing at just double-digit numbers. Um, And as a result, I think the introduction of IA and other other kind of uh, technological capabilities associated with the growth of, of new therapies is really just exploding the lab business in general. And as such, you know, we have been the benefactor here in Boston. Um, I, I think the key thing relative to what people have to know is that lab companies, are, it's a knowledge-based business. And what they need to do is understand that everything they provide as a service to tenants is going to be based on allowing those tenants to attract and retain the best possible talent because it is an incredibly competitive a market that they live in for the best scientists, the best technologists, and what they provide in their facilities is really a, a home for these people, and they use that as part of their recruiting tools, and, and we need to, as landlords, understand it to be successful. That's great. Thanks, Steve. So sort of building on this, 
the tenants that you're seeing in these life science lab spaces are obviously very different than your typical office tenant. Given that many of these tenants rarely make it to lease expiration, how do you evaluate tenants and plan for the future? How do you understand their credit profile and, and plan for the future with these types of tenants? I think over the last probably six to 10 years, that risk has become opportunity for landlords. Um, I don't know that we can necessarily forecast that moving forward. So the way that we try to plan for that at, at Tishman Spire and through our venture with um, Breakthrough Properties is, you know, with a robust, you know, vetting of, of, of tenants and science and um, the people that, you know, that fund those companies by providing support to those companies to the extent that they need it to help them succeed and creating community. But more, more than anything, I think within the physical real estate is providing for flexibility, you know, ro- flexibility, you know, robust infrastructure, you know, the ability to, you know, move people in and out of space and, and, you know, get bigger and smaller, you know, everything from, you know, potentially incubator space to grad lab space to provide a little bit more of a, you know, a flexible term for companies that you know will grow and just being really smart about the investment that we make and the investment that the tenants at the same time make in their space, which is which is really, really significant and, and big parts of their funding rounds. Yeah, we, we really, Steve Faber again, we really look at, um, there are three elements. One is uh, who is investing in them and what is their track record? These are the people that have, um, they, they have the infrastructure essentially to underwrite the real science associated with this tenant. As a private real estate developer, uh, we have, we do not, try to fully understand what they're doing from a science perspective. But we do try to understand exactly how successful the investors that are, have got more money at risk than we do uh, and do have that capability are looking at them. Secondly, we look at what they want to spend our money on. And we want that um, TI, uh, which can be today in excess of $200 a square foot, uh, we want to understand is that TI being spent on something that is reusable, that has flexibility if uh, in, the, um, uh, in the unfortunate situation that they don't make it. Um, and then thirdly, um, we do look at their initial capitalization and in getting to um, what is that next step that they need in order to raise the next uh, round of funding. And how long is that going to carry them? And is it going to carry them to a break-even point, at least, where we've made our money back relative to the investment that we've made. So it's it's really looking at that. It's looking at their burn rate and what they're spending money on and, uh, and what they're asking us to build. Uh, so Alexandria has, uh, for over 20 years, had an investment fund on its balance sheet, which uh, now amounts to about a billion dollars worth of investment in, um, in uh, private um, life science companies and in uh, venture capital uh, limited partnerships, and we um, uh, also have on on our payroll a, a team of, of scientists and business people who uh, f- track the industry very closely, who manage our investment fund, and who underwrite uh, each of our of our tenants uh, and continually underwrite them during the terms of their leases. And we think this gives us an unusual level of insight into what's going on with um, particular tenants, what's going on with the industry in 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 in, in in the whole, and um, and we use that information to you know to make to help us make decisions, obviously about how to uh, 
how to work with uh, tenants, how to fill our buildings, uh, who to select um, when we have the opportunity to be selective, as we have had in recent years with a very tight market. Uh, and that's um, uh, so, so we do underwrite carefully and, and, and give us, and that we think that gives us a lot, a lot of um, visibility or, or confidence in, in, in um, uh, our tenant base and our, in our investment strategy. Um, this is Carolyn Wheatley. I think one interesting thing about hearing all these answers is that, is that um, this issue of kind of not remaining through the duration of the lease term is actually a pretty two-sided issue. So I do, you know, probably 80 or 90 percent tenant representation. And the idea of them sort of preparing for the fact that they're signing a seven to 10 year lease, they're probably coming out of pocket, you know, 30 to $50 a foot on build out costs and expecting to stay in that space for two years and understanding that their growth projections are extremely fluid. This is actually something we think about. So when they look at space, the solution might be, you know, defensive leasing where they need 15,000 square feet today, but actually lease 20 or 25 and then sublease a portion short term before growing into it. The solution might be negotiating as flexible as possible sublease rights. You know, Atlas Ventures, Third Rock Ventures, a lot of the VCs are very good at um, working with us to kind of instill certain language into leases, giving them as much flexibility as possible to sort of plug other friends and family portfolio companies into their space should they outgrow it or head whatever direction. But in general, that's kind of an interesting layer to, um, you know, the space procurement process right now is we work with tenants and essentially help them to kind of visualize and understand the fact that they will likely become a sub-landlord, um, you know, 18 to 36 months into their term, right? So that might mean building out space that's a little highly functional for them, but marketable for other groups and not overly specialized, or building in a, a small sublease suite and looking at spaces that not only work for them, but are in, you know, are highly marketable spaces, are in neighborhoods where, they, where they'll be able to plug in a subtenant easily. So to a certain degree, you know, obviously this is kind of one of the main issues landlords deal with, but it's definitely one that's top of mind for tenants as well. So Carolyn, right now there's pretty significant alignment you think between tenants and landlords and how tenants space plan their space and how landlords approve or you know fund those improvements like more alignment now maybe than there was five years ago that's a really good question yeah i think in general there has been more alignment as tenants have had to become more sophisticated with their space as the stakes have been higher because of you know essentially lease term lengths lengthening, mm -hmm. um, increased competition for space and higher construction costs, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's not a world where we're you know I work with a lot of companies that are early stage, being a younger broker, younger-ish, um, and you know we're, we may be pre-series A, certainly pre-series B in many cases, and looking at smaller suites. Rarely do we kind of point them toward a sublease space with a built-out existing lab furnished short-term. That's kind of the glass slipper that's really hard to find. Um, a lot of it is me advising them saying, okay, you're taking on a full construction job. You're coming out of pocket significantly. Part of our job is kind of getting them to understand what I think is natural and sort of the landlord's mentality, which is... Um, it's important not to overshoot it. You know, companies have gone out of business leasing too much space. But in this environment, it's possible to go out of business leasing too little space. Mm -hmm. And that's actually um, a harder kind of layer to de-risk, a harder layer to justify with the board, to build consensus around, to understand. So one of the things that we've been really focused in, on, and I'm, I'm sure that, that, that Tom and Steve would say the same, is coming into markets where we can see a path to more density, where it's not one-off projects, where you're developing in clusters, and so that you can show a tenant that might take 40,000 square feet, get their employees, 
used to coming to that place that's highly amenitized and that they like and showing them that there's a path to when they become a 250,000 square foot tenant or a 500,000 square foot tenant that there will be options for them to grow in in proximity which is something that is difficult obviously in Kendall right now and that drives I think a lot of what you know how we're directing our investment activity in places like the seaport south boston alston where you can see bigger clusters forming to make it easier for you know those tenants that have that growth path to feel that they will be surrounded that there will be like-minded companies and growth potential for them how much of that do you see in like a selection criteria right now like do you see people that are less likely to look at potentially a Kendall Square because they don't know how they could grow there or do they you know do they see that as a necessary stepping stone to someplace else yeah I think um, as Kevin Gillis of Third Rock talked about earlier on our panel early stage definitely still has a strong bias for being at Kendall mm-hmm. being next to the MIT founders you know VCs are located there and can keep an eye on them they're smack dab in the middle of the lab cluster there's sort of no allowances or concessions made if you choose that geographic location that being said over the last few years a lot of groups have said it's great if we find space in Kendall but if I'm moving everybody in there setting up shop and then having to move them out of that market in nine months or 18 months or whatever it is is that better than just finding you know an alternative location I'm excited about now Mm -hmm. there are real clusters growing everywhere Mm -hmm. exciting compelling ones why don't I kind of just do that because I think you know if you're going to plant a flag in the seaport or east watertown or alston or whatever it is at a certain point you want to take down space and kind of have a path to grow there right mm-hmm. so know that you can hit twenty thousand square feet after you know 18 months forty thousand square feet another 12 months later you know a hundred thousand square feet whatever it is mm-hmm. hopefully you're working with me over to that stretch probably not mm-hmm. um but but, <laughs> but um, hopefully your tenants are working with you over that stretch <laughs> yeah. for sure but yeah i mean absolutely i think it's it's hugely disruptive to a company to kind of move submarkets, ask everybody to change commuting patterns, you know, certainly move a lab and relocate all of that and kind of build a culture and center in an area and then rip them out of that um, mm-hmm. submarket, you know, realistically probably within a couple of years based right. on the lab market. We, we were really uh, fortunate in terms of looking at the seaport, in terms of getting a, a kind of view into how people would, would evaluate this location mm-hmm. when we acquired 27 dry dock. 27 Dry Duck is at the end of the innovation and design building, the last piece, all the way out. I mean, it's as far east as you can get in the seaport. And the water taxi, idiot Black Falcon might might disagree. Yeah, <laughs> you go right. a little okay. further. A little the, further. The Portland cement uh, tanks. And then, uh, and so when we acquired the uh, the site, um, there were something like 23 tenants in the building, and literally within 14 months we had consolidated the entire rent roll down to five tenants. And they were all existing tenants and they all expanded and they all said, we love it, we can hire here, we can retain talent here, this is a great location for us, which really gave us all the confidence in the world to then go forth and, you know, we've now invested a billion dollars in the, uh, in the seaport in life science real estate. Because we, we had this, this view, this early view in that was, um, was really exceptional. We literally, we literally leased the entire building re-up without ever finding a new tenant. They were all existing tenants that all grew. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a very unique situation. So most of today's program, we talked a lot about new development. Given that construction costs and land costs are at an all-time high, what about conversions? Are you seeing that? Are any of you considering it, pros and cons to uh, converting existing space into lab or life science? Well, Alexandria's uh, 
been a conversion specialist for a couple of decades now. We've, we've certainly done a lot of buildings uh, starting out in the suburbs, frankly, with, um, with properties that you know, really industrial or flex properties. And then when we uh, started investing in Cambridge in the mid-2000, you know, 2005, 2006 timeframe, uh, we did a couple of major conversions at, uh, at Technology Square. Uh, we are doing some conversion of non-lab space to lab space at one Kendall Square right now. And at the Watertown Arsenal, which we just acquired, um, you know, we see some definite conversion opportunities there. The, the, the clear advantage of conversions is if the building is suitable for reuse as life science space, you can probably get it to market quicker and, uh, than, a, than a new development. You certainly can get it to market quicker than a new development uh, in most cases. And, um, uh, and that's... Uh, you know that's an advantage in a in what is currently a very tight market. Uh, so you know that was you know one of the you know one of the appealing items about the Watertown Arsenal was the opportunity to potentially convert some space there relatively quickly. Yeah, we at Related Beal we have um, we've done a ton of uh, of conversion properties. Uh, really starting in the 1970s with a property in East Cambridge where uh, essentially it was just one-story, 11,000-square-foot buildings uh, that were being used for, you know, T-shirt printing and auto repair and oil changes and so on. And, and we noticed that, you know, these buildings had, you know, 15-foot-high ceilings and you could throw air conditioning and HVAC on the roof uh, and they had access to plumbing and they had good power. And so all of a sudden we started converting it to lab space um, that was being used initially by MIT. And, you know, we're proud to say that Genzyme had one of its first labs there and a bunch of other companies. And, and that was a tremendous increase in value. But we uh, more recently, we've uh, 27 Dry Dock is a, is a conversion building. When we took it over, it really had kind of sort of lab infrastructure, but not, not really. And we found that in order to, to renew all of those tenants, we had to invest significantly in it. And there are some challenges with that that uh, you've got to look at carefully in terms of, of buildings. Typically, if you want to keep existing tenants, you're not going to be able to just do major coring through all the floors in order to get air and and plumbing and so on all the way through so you have to think about is this building able to do exterior you know stainless steel uh, kind of uh, kind of work through the the outside of the building not every location is going to allow for that so so that's something that you've got to look at 451d our latest uh, investment in the seaport which is 470,000 square feet. We have uh, invested $13 million in just pure infrastructure in the in the assets so that we can now convert approximately 160,000 feet into lab. And that lab will have a full, you know, uh, volume of air and uh, and plumbing infrastructure and power that uh, that labs would need. You know, just, just to add to that, I think, um, you know, on, on conversions, I think, pro especially products like Arsenal, um, like 27 Dry Dock, um, the Innovation and Design Building that have been successful, those are really specific, like, you know, projects that have really great bones, a really good vibe and feel, and things that tenants that, you know, aren't just life science tenants want. I think, you know, the danger in conversions is the tendency to maybe take something that doesn't necessarily have the physical characteristics of like really, you know, someplace people want to work and be and and try to shove, you know, shoehorn something into it. And, and you know, so I think when when we're when we're looking at conversions, I think we're looking at special real estate that, you know, that has the physical physical requirements, but also has the has place. 
sense of place. This is Carolyn. I'll just add to that, that on kind of the tenant rep side, I think, you know, lab capable, quote unquote, can be a really dangerous word. So that's sort of another Mm -hmm. layer of risk, right? When tenants are looking for additional space is there are blue chip operators who do this really well. There are, you know, to Steve's point, folks who are willing to spend the money and kind of create, you know, high quality lab space. And then there it's a it's a trendy space right now. So that's certainly something tenants look at is, you know, diving deep into especially the landlord tenant. Uh, responsibility matrix to understand like what does lab capable mean at building A versus building B. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about uh, regulatory burdens and how they play into continued growth of this sector. Uh, specifically, we talked today about places like Watertown and Cambridge. Both of those communities right now are considering a ban on new fossil fuel connections. Uh, the city of Boston is moving forward on a carbon-free Boston plan that really is focusing on electrification. What does that mean for lab and life science? Uh, you know, is this going to have an immediate impact? As an example, Cambridge is thinking about putting something into effect immediately. Um, but what does that mean, you know, looking to the future and the impact on this sector? Well, uh, you know, I think the advocates for, you know, these proposals are, you know, are, are really passionate about about um, getting us to a you know carbon free yeah carbon free uh, footprint for our for our buildings and look our, our buildings are uh, large consumers of energy we happen to be in a climate that requires um, uh, us to provide you know heating and cooling in lar- you know in, in quantity uh, because we're you know these buildings need to be heavily ventilated in order to um, uh, meet the the needs of the, the the scientific activities going on inside them. I think over time, as an industry, we uh, Alexandria, I'll say, is is very focused on uh, coming up with new ways to build labs and to reduce the energy consumption related to labs, so that when you know when over time, as these as these uh, carbon reduction policies. Um, uh, particularly from local governments and state governments come into place and they're and they're coming rapidly and you know in some cases more rapidly than the technology is there to support them uh, you know we will we will you know we need to be well on our way towards figuring out how to how to run these buildings without using a lot of um, of carbon footprint and that will involve you know some some changes or some improvements in technology it will um, likely result in higher initial costs should result in lower ongoing costs hopefully uh, over time as the grid becomes more electric and less you know or, or more alternative energy based and less uh, uh, less uh, carbon based uh, but you know we understand where the sentiment is coming from we are working very hard as you know as developers and building owners and and you know architects and engineers and consultants trying to figure out how do we how do we achieve these goals that really, you know, over the long run are, are going to have to be met in order to, you know, ensure that the, the planet doesn't, you know, overheat, right? So, uh, so we're really, really working hard on it, and it, you know, the the the, you know, trying, however, trying to, you know, make the development or the the business of building new buildings uh, change on a dime based on new regulations is just really. Uh, going to be difficult. So I think that you know, hopefully, local um, governments will you know understand this and exempt particular types of buildings, at least from you know lab buildings in particular, and, and there are others, hospitals that um, you know will take some time to wean off of carbon just by the nature of the of how the buildings operate. Yeah, I think uh, I, I would echo 
uh, Tom, your sentiments. We also at uh, Related Beale are very focused and interested in looking at ways to make our properties more efficient. So how do we use less? There's, there's that side of the equation. And then relative to what type of energy we do use, y you know, the real challenge is, is really going to be put on the utility providers as well. At this point, you know, utility providers have got to, if we were to go to an electrification, we would just run out of, of power. There just isn't enough um, that's available. So it's great to put a regulation in that says that, you know, this is what you have to do. Uh, but the reality is we're not producing, you know, all of our power. We're producing some percentage of it uh, in terms of solar, in terms of small wind, in terms of cogeneration. But we, we will not ever have the capability of being able to provide for all our needs on site. Um, and therefore, we will need third-party production and, and therefore, really, I think the regulation and a lot of the focus needs to be put on on the utility providers in order to in order to facilitate getting the amount of power that uh, that is going to be needed for growth. Okay, now for the million dollar question that everyone wants to know. A lot of new supply is coming online right around 2022-2023. Can the market absorb all of this supply and are there any other threats on the horizon that we should be thinking about? You know, one of the things that we that we have been focused on is, you know, near very near-term supply. So, you know, we have a project 105 West 1st Street which we can deliver in, you know, between the 3rd and 4th quarter of 2021. Steve has a project obviously that's delivering in 2021 that's already pre-leased. We've so we've we really have been focused on trying to hit some sort of slot before that 20, you know, 2023 when, you know, when, when a lot of product comes. I think if you look at, you know, a Kevin, um, who spoke today at the, you know, at, at the panel, you look at the dry powder that a third rock has, and then you multiply that across, you know, the, the flagships and the Vita Ventures and the, you know, the other groups that are here. Um, and then the, you know, the pharma industry, and you look at, you know, the, you know, the power and the money um, that's there for company formation, you know, and then you look at the, you look at the 400 PhD graduates last year, and the 4,000 um, life, you know, graduates from, you know, with life science or um, um, bio, I guess, what was the Biotech degrees. Bio, biotech degrees, just from local, you know, local industries. And then you think of the jobs that, you know, the jobs that are out there and then the ancillary jobs beyond that. Then you, you, you know, it gives you a really good idea of what $7 billion of like of, of dry powder can do for company formation in just the greater Boston area alone. It makes me feel really good, even given the new <laughs> supply dynamics. You know, with that said, I think that we're really mindful, um, and I'm sure, you know, most people in the business are, that, you know, the best product, the best locations tied to transportation and tied to great institutions like Harvard, like MIT, like others, and, you know, clustered around, you know, other pharma companies or um, biotech companies will be the more successful places. And I, you know, I, I don't know that we'll be making as big bets outside of, of those places that are, you know, that are bad at. I think, you know, one of the things that we say often is, we might not always be like bleeding edge, but we want to be cutting edge. So we might not be, you know, as, as Tishwin Spire, we might not be the first people into a market or making a market, but we want to deliver the best product once we get to that market. And, you know, I'd say that that, that would be our focus. Yeah, you know, Alexandria has been um, heavily invested in Kendall Square for a number of years, and we've continued to make that investment. We have more to do there. We certainly recognize as well that supply needs to be created outside the Kendall Square core in order to meet the demand that we see and we you know we you know there, there is a lot of supply being conjured up on the books some of it's under construction some of it's getting entitled mm -hmm. uh, and you know much of it's been 
announced, uh, and we think that there's still, um, you know, as Kevin Gillis was, sh was showing today with his slides, there's, there's tons and tons of work to be done still in, in life science and in drug discovery. Um, you know, 500, you know, medicines uh, up against 10,000 known diseases at this point. So we, you know, we think it's early innings of, of um, the life science R&D, the century of biology, whatever we want to call it here. And Boston is the, is the, you know, most concentrated market for that activity. And we think that will continue to be the case with the great academic and uh, clinical institutions and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists that we have here. So, you know, we're very bullish on the, on the long-term success. And I, I think that, you know, as a long-term investor, you know, we know that there will be periods of time in the market when, you know, supply and demand might get, get a little bit imbalanced. But, um, you know, long run, we're very, very comfortable and confident. Uh, yeah, Tom, I, I, I concur with uh, with what you're saying. Um, I, I think, though, that short-term, and I have to look a little more short-term because I'm more of a private sector investor, um, even though we, we do hold buildings for the long term, but we do also have some fund investments uh, which kind of have a term to them. You really have to look at quality, and I think that, as I said in the uh, in the presentation earlier, it seems to me, in some ways, life science is being seen as almost a panacea for um, added valuation beyond what what really a particular piece of land should have, um, simply because of a tremendous growth uh, in that industry and the thought that just because, from a zoning perspective, you know, you can do lab or life science mm -hmm. there doesn't mean you should. And I think that uh, what I've been hearing just through some of the offerings that are that are on the table today relative to if it was all built as lab or life science or acquired as lab or life science real estate, the simple answer would be uh, we would have uh, we would have some disappointed owners uh, in the end because I think that it would take longer to absorb that product, uh, if ever, uh, than they would have anticipated, um, and they would not be meeting their investment returns. So. Mm -hmm. Our focus is going to be on quality locations where we try to deliver a quality product that we know uh, there'll be a market for. One, one other thing just to say, I, I think there's been like a true unintended consequence of what's happened, especially in the last couple of years with the run up with the the bifurcation or the, the real imbalance now in land in land values and you know we're we are all everyone I think here has been part of that and also you know it has seen it happen where you've gone to essentially zero you know almost no almost no value for you know multifamily housing which we desperately need um here here in, Bo in Boston and I'm speaking about Boston specifically but this is pretty regional in general and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for office and now for lab and now office space you know which is now also in the minds of you know anyone that owns any sort of land anywhere and what that what an impact that will have on um, you know further intensifying the you know the lack of affordable housing and or and market rate housing um, ability to you know to hire people that will populate all of these lab buildings and office buildings you know is a is a real is a real issue that I think that we have to deal with but it's a market force which is um, which which makes it you know a little bit more difficult to deal with. And I would just add to that, um, our view at CBRE, this is the number one, you know, life science cluster in the globe. Um, mm -hmm. We have the best talent in the world. We have institutions pumping out additional talent in the world in a 
you know, super, super tight job market, probably the only market harder to navigate right now than the real estate market. We're tracking 3 million square feet of pent up demand, and that's really just the visible demand, right? <laughs> so lease expiration driven or companies we've seen in the market. In this type of market with so little space available, there's a lot we don't even see. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, bottom threshold number. So I think we're really bullish on all the supply coming online. That being said, um, the challenge will be, you know, using that new development, which tends to be much higher in cost, both in terms of, you know, requiring full build out some shell, tenant coming out of the pocket, out of pocket, and landlords just having to recoup a lot of costs with higher rents. The challenge there will be, you know, having that supply able to service the early stage companies and the folks that are so much of the driver of kind of the appeal of being here, you know, for startups to try and get into the new supply landscape where sometimes the minimum uh, lease size can be 40,000 square feet and they're full build out some shell, et cetera. I think, you know, landlords, developers, and tenants will have to get creative in terms of finding solutions that make economic size timing sense for startups, whether that's incubators, as Tom mentioned earlier, or otherwise. I think both your groups, Tom and Siva, have done a great job of providing some of those incubator solutions that can act as kind of lily pad space to help service that segment of the life science ecosystem. All right. Well, that seems like a great way to wrap things up. Thank you all. Uh, We look forward to seeing the continued success of the lab and life science market. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Big Dig Podcast. For more information about real estate development, design, and construction, go to bldup.com. Get in the know. In the know, the only way to stay on top of all of the details that are impacting the future of your construction and real estate development business. Be one of the first 200 to get in the know. In the know helps customers analyze data and market intelligence that can help impact the future business development of your business. For more information about In the Know, you can go to bldup.com or email me, Noah Coughlin, N-O-A-H at bldup.com. For more information on the Commercial Real Estate Development Association, NAOP, Massachusetts, go to naiopma.org.